Thank you for listening to the Collective Church Podcast. Collective is a church for the rest of us, and whether you call Collective your church home or you are just checking us out, we hope you are encouraged and inspired to take the next step in your journey toward the grace and truth of Jesus. For more information about Collective, you can visit us online at mycollective.church or follow us on social media at mycollectivechurch. Now, let's get into today's message. When I was in college, I decided to try and learn how to play the violin. Now, before I share the rest of the story with you, you have to promise me that you're not going to tease me about this forever, because this is one of the top two or three most embarrassing stories of my life. And so I need you to say, I promise, or I'm not going to continue, and we're just going to cancel church. Right? All right. Do you guys promise? Listen, people, this is embarrassing. All right. I trust most of you. If not, we're going to fist fight in the parking lot later. So... When I was in college, I decided that I wanted to learn to play the violin because my favorite band at the time was Yellow Card, right? Anybody listen to Yellow Card? Yeah, okay, see? Uh, Ocean Avenue, Way Away, Only One, all anthems of my youth. Now, if you've never heard Yellow Card, you should check them out on Spotify later. Remember, you promised not to tease me. I went back and tried to listen to them this week. They're terrible. Like my childhood, I just listened to bad music, apparently. They're new stuff. Their old stuff was good. It was very angsty. And so as a kid, I loved Yellow Card. It's like punk slash emo. It's just super emotional. And apparently I was just an emotional teenager. But the cool thing about this band is that they have a violinist. And so it's awesome. And so when I was in high school, I got to see them live, and I decided that I wanted to learn how to play punk songs on the violin. And so a few years later, my sophomore of college, I had actually signed up for 15 hours of classes, and I realized that I had some extra time, so I signed up for beginner's violin. I took it for college credit, so that's how much I wanted to do it, I guess. So now, it's really important to know this. I never played an instrument before. I didn't grow up in a household where we played. My parents bought us a drum set once. I think I played it twice. My brother played it way more than I ever did. And so I have no musical ability, but I figured, how hard can the violin be? In case you're wondering, very hard. The violin is considered one of the toughest instruments to learn. In fact, most of the time people will say it is the hardest instrument to learn how to play, but I was determined. So I walked into class, I grabbed the violin and I started to learn. Two times a week for a whole semester, I tried my best to figure out how to play the violin, but I was terrible. It didn't matter how much I practiced. It didn't matter how hard I tried. I was awful. Week after week, I'd come into class, and this classically trained professor would just stare at me. She even stopped offering me advice at one point because it was clear that I was a lost cause and I was never going to be a professional violinist. It actually got so bad at one point, she called me into her office on a day where I didn't have a class, and she asked me if I'd ever been diagnosed with dyslexia, right? And she tried actually for 30 minutes to convince me to go see my guidance counselor because she thought I was so bad at the violin that I had a learning disability. And I told her that I wasn't dyslexic. I just suck at the violin, right? I understood what I wanted to play. I understood what I was trying to do. I I knew that it mattered how I held the violin, where I put my fingers on the fretboard, how the bow moved. I understood all of that. I just sucked. So do you ever get frustrated because you know what you're supposed to do, but you have no idea how to do it? Right? You're learning to drive for the first time, and your instructor keeps telling you to line up the car with the parked car's tire on the right, and then turn the steering wheel all the way, and then slowly straighten it out. And you're like, this isn't working. Right? I'm doing everything you're telling me, but it doesn't make sense because parallel parking is stupid. I'm just going to park in parking lots and garages for the rest of my life. So do you ever know what to do, but you just don't know how to do it? 
I believe that there are things in your life that you need to do. I believe that there are things in your life that you want to do, but you just don't know how to do them. And that's what we're going to be talking about today because it's frustrating when you're trying to learn the violin or trying to figure out how to parallel park. But what we're really talking about is something deeper. We're really talking about your marriage where you've had people tell you all the stuff that supposedly it takes to make a great marriage, but you don't know how to live that out in your marriage. Right? Or we're talking about work where you want a job that you want to want to go to, but that's not your work environment. And so while you're at that job, you're just not sure how to get to a place of loving it, right? And we're talking about that friendship you have that's just broken. And you know, the book answers on what you're supposed to do, but you just don't know how to live that out in real life. What do you do when you know what to do, but you don't know how to do it? And that's what we're focusing on this week uh, in the topic of honor. So we spent the last three weeks talking about the why and kind of the who when it comes to treating people as uncommon. And today we're working through the how. So today the question we're wrestling with is this, how do we honor? And so if you're taking notes, write this at the top. This is what it's all about. If you're not taking notes, you should probably still write this at the top of your page. It's that important. Because in this series, we've gotten good information, right? We've read powerful scriptures from the Bible. Last week, we even had an intense talk about how honor actually starts with our parents. And so we've gotten good stuff in this series. But the question is, how are we going to do it? We like this idea of honor. We like this idea of treating people as uncommon. But how do we do it in our own lives? So today, we're going to be looking at a story. And it's an interaction between, between Jesus and some of his closest followers, and this story will actually give us a tool and it will teach us a very simple way of how we can honor people, how to treat other people as uncommon. And so here's the story. It's in Mark 10. It says this. They were now on the way up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them. So they, meaning Jesus and his inner circle of 12 disciples, right, his closest followers, they are walking up toward Jerusalem. And the disciples were filled with awe and the people falling behind were overwhelmed with fear. Taking the 12 disciples aside, Jesus once more began to describe everything that was about to happen to him. Now, in the Bible, there are four biographies of Jesus called the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they're each written from their namesake's perspective. And they don't all contain the same stories. They don't actually even start and stop at the same place. But if you took all four of those biographies and you mashed them up together into one giant book and read the stories in chronological order you would see that the closer Jesus gets to his death, the more detail he gives his disciples about what's going to happen, right? In the beginning, it's a lot about teaching. It's a lot about healing. It's a lot about pointing to the fact that he is the savior. But toward the end, it's a lot of pointing toward the actual death that he'll suffer. And so this is what Jesus says to them about this. He says, listen, we're going up to Jerusalem where the son of man will be betrayed to the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. They will sentence him to die and hand him over to the Romans. So what Jesus is doing is he's saying, like, this is what's going to happen to me. Right? He is the son of man. He is the one that God sent to rescue his people. And he's saying, hey, this is, this is the reality. Right? And he explains that, uh, that eventually he'll be sentenced to die and handed over to the Romans. Because what would happen is that the Jew Jewish religious leaders of the time did not believe that Jesus was the son of God. And so what they did is they put him on trial and they decided to charge him with blasphemy which is punishable by death. Now, the thing with that is the Jewish religious leaders actually couldn't do the execution. They didn't have legal grounds, so they had to hand him over to the Romans who actually did have the power. And so, the, so they take Jesus to the Roman authorities and they tell them he needs to be executed because of blasphemy. 
And so that's what's going to happen. And Jesus is saying, hey, this is the reality of the life that I'm living. This is the reality of this timeline that we're on. He explains that to his disciples. But before it actually happens, he shares some of the details. And he actually continues in this story. He says this, they will mock him, spit on him, flog him with a whip and kill him. But after three days, he will rise again. And so Jesus is going into great detail. In fact, it's the most detail he's given his disciples up to this point in his life. And he explains, they're going to mock me. In the story, we find out they end up saying to Jesus, hey, if you're the son of God, why don't you just save yourself? And we, end up, we find out they end up putting a sign above the cross that says king of the Jews. And they do that because they're mocking him. They spit on him. They flog him with a whip. One gospel even goes into detail and explains that the tips of the whip were made out of lead. They're going to kill him. But he finishes and says, but after three days, he will rise again. He promises that he will conquer death, that he will resurrect. And so this moment, this moment is Jesus pouring out his heart to his boys, right? To his closest friends. They're approaching the cross. His execution and torture are imminent. And he's saying, I need to let you know what's going to happen. They're going to torture me. It's going to be horrible. It's going to be brutal. I'm going to die, but I'm going to come back. And to this moment in Jesus' story, this is the most intense and intimate thing that Jesus shares with his friends. And this is how they respond. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came over and spoke to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do a favor for us. And essentially they're responding, hey, Jesus, we need you to do something. We know that whole like getting whipped and dying thing, like, sorry about that, that's gonna be really tough. But listen, can you do us a solid, right? Do you ever have those moments where you hear somebody talk, but you don't really hear what they're saying because you're already thinking about what you're going to say next, right? Don't pretend. We all do that. Come on. It's, it's a part of us. And that's what they're doing right now, right? They're not even listening to what Jesus is saying. They're already thinking about what they want, what they think is best for them. And I love how they even phrase it. And they ask, can you do us a favor, right? They don't even say what it is first. They want to know, like, will you say yes to this question before I ask you the next one? Right? And you know how that works. Right? You know when any time somebody ever asks you, hey, can you do me a favor? They're about to ask you to do something you don't want to do. Right? That's how we preface it. We're like, all right, if they say yes to this, they'll be more likely to say yes to the next thing. I do this all the time. This is my wife. I'm the worst. The kids will finally be in bed after a long day. Ray and I will be downstairs relaxing. I'll be watching the Orioles lose. Like She'll get up to go make her lunch for the next day. And I'll ask, hey, can you do me a favor? And she'll say, yeah, of course, whatever, whatever you need. I'm like, oh, yeah, dude, totally forgot to do laundry. Will you do that for me? Right? Or I'll ask, hey, the dog needs to go out. Do you mind letting the dog out? But then also, can you do me a second favor, which is letting the dog back in because she'll just start barking uncontrollably. And it usually results in her staring at me or rolling her eyes at me until I burst into flames, something. But I always try to soften the blow by asking, can you do me a favor? So that's what they ask. And Jesus responds in verse 36, and I wish I could hear his tone in this because he asks, he's like, what is your request? Right, I always think of him as like a parent, like when the kids like keep asking you questions, and I'm actually like, okay, what do you want? And that's what Jesus is saying. And so they replied, when you sit on your glorious throne, we want to sit in places of honor next to you, one on your right and the other on your left. And so again, Jesus, we're sorry that you're going to die. That whip thing sounds terrible, but listen, when you get to heaven and you sit on your glorious throne, can we be your most honored people? Right, and they say, okay, Jesus, like, we know you're the most honored, you have the big throne, but can we have the one to the left and to the right? And that's what they're asking. Can we be the most honored people next to you? Now, time out really fast. 
This story is one of the reasons why you should read your Bible every day. Because one of the benefits of reading the Bible is as you read these stories, you begin to feel better about yourself because you begin to read about the people that Jesus chose to follow him and you realize they're morons, right? At this point, they've been following Jesus for years and they're still going, okay, this death thing, not interested, but how about a throne, right? And so you read these stories and you just feel a little bit better that Jesus loved them, he'll love you as well. And so that's why you read your Bible every day. All right, time in. Story continues. When the 10 other disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were indignant. Now, if you read the other tellings of the Gospels, you'll read that they weren't indignant because they felt like James and John were being arrogant, right? That's not where their frustration came from. In fact, when you read the other stories about it, you find out that they're mad because they didn't think about it first. And so they all start to bicker amongst themselves about who gets to be on the left and the right of Jesus. They all want that place of honor. And so Jesus called them together and said this, He says, you know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people and officials flaunt their authority over those under them, right? So in direct response to the question that James and John ask about being placed in a seat of honor next to Jesus when they die, Jesus talks about current leaders and their culture, right? He references the people in their life that have been put in places of honor in the world. And he reminds them that these people that are in honor that are over you, these rulers and officials who have authority, they use their position for their own benefit, right? They use their influence and their power to lord over people. So he reminds them, like, that's what the honor brings in this culture. But then he says this, but among you, it will be different. Among you, it will be different. He's saying, you all want honor, then you need to act differently. You don't treat people the way that the current leaders and the current people in authority do. And Jesus, remember, he's speaking to a group of people that will be the foundation of this worldwide phenomenon, the global movement called the church. And so he's saying to them, as you start this thing that will encompass billions of people and you go into every country in the world, if you want to be in a place of honor, you need to be different. And then he actually continues and he explains what they do. He says, whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone else. If you want to be in a place of honor, This is the life that you live. Now, here's something really interesting. Jesus doesn't say that it's bad to want to be a leader. Jesus doesn't even say that it's bad that they want honor, right? He doesn't say that you shouldn't want influence or you shouldn't want leadership. The verse says, humble yourself. It says, be a servant. He doesn't correct the idea that they want to be in that position, right? He says, whoever wants to be a leader must serve. Another translation of the same verse says, whoever wants to be great must be a servant to all. The idea is this, it's okay to want to be great, but here's how you do it. You serve others. You treat other people as uncommon. You see, James and John want honor. The rest of the disciples want honor. And Jesus never bashes them for wanting that, for wanting to be great leaders or or just wanting to have influence. Jesus doesn't actually criticize those things. What he says is that the way you get that is the complete opposite of what you're thinking, right? It's completely opposite to what the world teaches you. It's completely opposite to what you believe is how you receive honor. Because the way you receive honor is to give it. And so I wanna give you a very simple tool and that Jesus gives us to teach us uh, how to honor. And I'm going to give you a tool of, of how to uh, actually begin to honor others based on this passage. This is really important, but it's really simple. You should write this down. What can I do to help? It's just that simple. The question is, what can I do to help? What 
can I do to help? See, this is what James and John should have been asking. Not, hey, Jesus, I'm sorry all those terrible things are going to happen to you, but can you give us some glory and honor? What they should have said is, hey, Jesus, what can we do to help your mission? Right? And what's really important is that this question is active and not passive. Right? This isn't, well, I asked them what I could do to help, and they didn't answer, so I guess I'm not going to do anything to honor them. That's not what's happening here. But it's active. It's, it's this. It's, I'm going to do something anyways, so tell me how I can help you. Right? And if you don't tell me, I'm going to go do something anyway, so you might as well tell me what you actually want me to do. How can I help you? And the reason this question is so powerful is exactly what Jesus says. The people you know that are in positions of honor or greatness or leadership or any sort of authority, they've lorded over you. Right? So most people in those positions say, here is what you can do to help me. But when you follow Jesus, the question is different. Jesus says, when you are in a place of leadership or influence, you ask, what can I do to help you? And this is a question that we ask as a church all the time. We're constantly reaching out to people and organizations trying to figure out, what can we do to help? We want to know how we can love and care for this city. And one of the answers that we get time and time again, one of the biggest needs in Frederick centers around the 11,000 kids who are in this county that are food insecure. And so a few weeks ago, I teased you all about a big event that's going to be happening this summer, and so here it is. So this summer, West Frederick Middle School is actually going to be refinishing the floors in the gym. So we're going to be out of this gym on July 7th and 14th. On July 7th, we're going to do church in the cafeteria. Our team's already working on a way to make that awesome. But on July 14th, instead of doing back-to-back weeks in the cafeteria, we're doing an event. And so we're going to cancel church here, and we're going to meet in the community, and we're hosting an event that we're calling the Grocery Store Buyout. Think of it as supermarket sweep, only instead of picking up a bunch of coffee and ham, you pick up food that then you get to help hungry kids when school starts. And so that's what we're going to do. You'll show up between 9 and noon to the Wise Market on Prospect Boulevard. Our tents will be set up. We'll have a bunch of things going on. And when you show up, we'll give you a list. And the list is going to have between 8 to 12 items on it, like specific items that this school and Blessings in a Backpack and Frederick have asked for. And we'll give you the list, and you get to purchase whatever you want from that list. So you can go down, you can pick one from each thing, you can pick 10 from each thing. You could, there's going to be, one of the things on there will, be, will end up being cereal. If you've ever wanted to know what it looks like to have a shopping cart full of cereal, this is the opportunity to do it, right? And so ultimately it's this, you'll have a list, you buy the things on the list, and our goal is to have so many people participate in this that we're able to fill up a trailer full of food for Blessings in a Backpack in West Frederick Middle School. Because when we reach out to them and say, hey, how can we help? And specifically when we reach out at the end of a school year, the thing they constantly repeat is that when school kicks back up, these kids have no food, right? To be honest, a lot of organizations take the summer off. And so our job, and we feel like our, what we're supposed to do, is fill that gap. So July 14th, grocery store buyout. We're going to talk about it over the next few weeks. We've got a few more cool things to announce as time moves on. You'll show up, invite your friends, buy a bunch of food, fill a trailer, go home, and ultimately know that there are kids in this school and kids in this community that have a better education because of that, that will feel safer because of that, and we'll know that there's a community that loves them. And so you ask, what can I do to help? Now, this is a big way that we all get to do that together, but the question is, how do you do that on a one-on-one level? How do you do that on a relational level, on a smaller level? How do we ask that question, what can I do to help? And so I want to give you two qualifiers uh, for the context of this series on, on honor on how to ask this question. So here's the first qualifier. Don't wait until they're dead. Don't wait until they're dead. And I know this sounds weird, but here's what I mean. Americans as a whole are not good at honor. 
And so Americans as a whole, we are not good at treating people as uncommon. But you know when we're good at treating people as uncommon? When they die, right? And I'm not being facetious here. That's just a reality, and we know that. When you die, we're going to honor you. We're going to talk good about you. We're going to tell funny stories. We're going to remember the good times. We're going to cry over you. And then we're going to go back and eat potato salad as a community because that's what we do, right? And so we're going to honor you when you die. But the thing is, why do we wait Right? A few years ago, I was working through this topic with another pastor, and one of my friends in the room actually shared that he has a weird fantasy about his own death. He said he wanted to figure out how he could attend his own funeral. He explained that he knew it was weird, but it's the one time where everyone's just going to say all these wonderful things about him, and so he wanted to know what his friends and family would say. And the truth is, we know that that's true. And the truth is, we know that that's sad. And for some reason, as a culture, have just accepted that if you want to hear people talk the best about you that they ever will, you have to somehow figure out how to raise from the dead and secretly attend your own funeral. And so don't wait until they're dead. The Bible says in Hebrews 3, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today. In week one, we said if you keep honor to yourself, you're not actually honoring people, so you need to honor today. You don't wait until it's too late. You don't wait until they no longer feel that honor. You, to be honest, we end up doing that to make ourselves feel better. You honor now and not later. And so there are some of us that need to show honor to somebody before it's too late. Right? Remember that fourth grade teacher that inspired you to become a teacher? Write her a note. You know that band member that rehearses every week for hours on end, and you just love coming in and showing up and being able to have a great worship experience? Send them a gift card. You know that neighbor, right? That's a really good neighbor. And I know we love to talk about our bad neighbors, but you all have at least one good neighbor. And so you have this good neighbor, and they never do anything to get on your nerves. They help you out. They care for your family. Let them know. Do not wait until they are dead to honor them. Ask them now, what can I do to help? The second qualifier is this. Where there is no margin, there is no honor. Now, here's what I mean. If you fill your life to the max, you can't ask people, what can I do to help, right? If you've spent every dollar, if you've allocated every minute, if you've already pre-decided where you're going to spend every emotional amount of energy you have, you do not have the margin to treat other people as uncommon. Because you know what happens when you ask people, what can I do to help you? They give you something to do, right? And then you have to go do it. And I mean, I guess you could ask them and not follow through, but that makes you a hypocrite. Or you could just choose not to ask them, but to be honest, that makes you kind of selfish. So to create some margin so you can ask people, what can I do to help you, and actually follow through. And here's what I see sometimes at Collective. This doesn't tend to be people I meet in the lobby, but people I meet downtown at one of the breweries, Baker Park, something like that. And these people will come up to me and they'll say, and I'll be wearing like a collective shirt or a collective hoodie or something like that, and they'll say, listen, I love collective. They'll say the preaching is great, collective kids is great, worship is amazing, the love for Frederick is wonderful, but I just don't know anybody. Right? And so I'll hear that from time to time. They say, I just don't know anybody. And I get that. I would struggle to be a part of a church if I didn't know anybody. Right? I may check it out for a few weeks or something, but if I don't feel like I'm connecting, if I don't feel like I'm getting to know some people there, it'd be hard to stick around. But when I hear this, the first question I immediately ask is, have you ever thought about joining a team and serving on Sunday morning? The answer is always no. So I ask, okay, well, maybe not Sunday morning. We get up really early, like all that stuff. Have you ever considered checking out a group? We have multiple groups that meet multiple nights, multiple times. And they'll say no. 
And then what they do is they begin to list everything they have going on. And what ends up happening is at the end of the conversation, they say, I'm not connected. I don't know people. But the truth is, I'm just too busy anyways. And I get that. I get that. We're busy. We live in one of the busiest areas of the world. But what ends up happening is we create a life where there is no margin. And so if you say, God, what can I do to help you move in my life? You have left no room for him to show up. Right? And I'm not saying God acting in your life is 100% dependent on you. What I'm saying is that you've chosen to have no margin, which effectively says, God, even if you wanted to move, even if you wanted to act in my life, even if you wanted to give me that connection, I have not created space for that to happen. Where there is no margin, there is no honor. When you look at your budget, and listen, I'm talking to all people here, Christians, non-Christian, whoever it is. When you look at your budget, when you look at your calendar, when you look at your life and what's taking pieces out of you emotionally, when you look at what you've already committed to, do you have the margin to honor other people? And if the answer is no to that question, that's actually where you start, right? You have to create space to do that. And the way you do that is by figuring out what your priorities are in your life, right? And so what you do is you ask yourself, what gets the majority of time and resources, and if you were to go home today and you were to make a list and you were to list out everything that takes your time, your money, and your energy, and you were to list them from 1 to 50, 1 to 100, whatever it may be, you'll realize that you don't have enough margin because you prioritize Netflix over honoring other people. Right? You'll realize that you prioritize your car over honoring Jesus. You'll realize that your priorities and subsequently your margin belong to things that do not create space to give honor. And because of that, you treat your friends, your family, your coworkers, and even Jesus as common. Now let's look again at what Jesus says in Mark 10. He doesn't say whoever wants to be a leader must intend to serve others. Right? He doesn't say whoever wants to be a leader must desire to serve others. He doesn't say whoever wants to be a leader must have good intentions of serving others and your heart must be in the right place, but life is overwhelming and just forgets about it and that's okay. He says whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. See, I personally, I want to honor people. I just forget. I know that I should treat others as uncommon, but it gets pushed aside. So I've realized for me that I don't have the space to do it. I don't have the space to do it well, and so I have to make it a priority. In your marriage, do you have time set aside regularly where it's just the two of you, and you can honestly ask your spouse, what can I do to help you? Right? Help you get that project done. Help you take that trip. Help you have more fun. Help you achieve that education. What can I do to help you? In your business, is it all about you telling everyone else what to do? Or do you have a system where your people know that you're going to sit down with them on a regular basis and ask, hey, what can I do to help them? And you're actually going to follow through. In your parenting, do you create environments where you can ask your kids, what can I do to help you? And it's actually a safe place for them to answer that question. After Jesus challenges his disciples to be different and to choose honor by serving others, he finishes his teaching by giving them the most powerful reason to trust what he's saying. And this is what he said to close out this conversation. He says, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. He's saying the way you lead is by serving others. And if you want an example of that, just look at me on the cross. Right? Jesus is asking, do you want honor? He's asking, do you want to be great? He says, then be a servant of all. And if you're wondering how far to take it, watch me. 
The reason that Christians ask, what can I do to help, is because Jesus asked it first. Jesus asks, what can I do to help? And so what ended up happening is Jesus went to the cross because the only way that we could have a relationship with God was for someone perfect to die in our place. And that's called grace. Because Jesus said, what can I do to help? Your past can be forgiven and your future can be secured. That's why we celebrate baptism here at Collective. Right? Baptism is the death of your old self and the raising up of a new life. If Jesus can help you in any way, it's that. It's forgiveness. It's grace. Last week we celebrated when David was baptized, and if you were here when he was done, he just sat in the tub for a few minutes and just looked up to God. For years in his life, he's been asking everyone else in the world, what can you do to help me? And they've given him no answers. But he realized when he asked Jesus that same question, it was freedom. It was hope. It was life. And so Jesus asks, what can I do to help you? And the answer is what sent him to the cross. His grace is a free gift, and the reason why we should honor other people is to point people toward that, toward his love, toward his freedom, toward his hope. Now, I know that the reality is that for a handful of people, this sermon might feel like a waste of time. Right, Because you're thinking, hey, Michael, nice talk, but for you and the situation that you're in right now, you can't think for a second about helping somebody else because you feel like you're at the end of your rope. So what we want you to know today is that Jesus came to help you. He didn't come to burden you. He came to set you free. He came to comfort you. He came to pick you up. He came so you could live freely and lightly. And so if you're thinking right now, I've just got nothing, that's okay. Just know that Jesus is asking you, what can I do to help you? And even though you might not have an answer right now, and even though you're not sure you'll ever be able to ask that same question to somebody else, Jesus is holding on to you, and he's not letting you go because of that. And even if you feel like you have nothing to offer, you have everything Jesus ever wants, which is yourself. He simply wants you. He wants to be in a relationship with you, to serve you, to give his life for you. If at some point you choose to take that step and hold on to him just a little bit, there will become a point when you have just a little bit to give, and he will give you the strength to ask, what can I do to help you? See, if we want to be people of honor, if we want to be people of influence, it starts with us serving. It starts with us caring about other people. It starts with us humbling ourselves to honor and treat other people as uncommon. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the help that you offer. God, because so often we, we look at our own life and we look at our pain and we look at our circumstance, we look at our sin. God, we look at our marriage, we look at our jobs, our friendships. And we don't really know what to do. God, we know they're broken. We know what we want to do. But God, so often we don't even know where to turn. And so God, we're so thankful that in any of those moments, we know that you're waiting for us. God, that you're reaching out for us, that you're asking the question, how can I help you? God, thank you that it doesn't have anything to do with what we do, how good we are, the right things that we do. But God, the number one way that you help us is by giving us grace, by giving us forgiveness, by giving us love, by giving us second chances. God, I pray this week um, that we have opportunities to honor other people. God, uh, to be honest, uh, I, I pray that we're uncomfortable this week because people 
give us things to do. So God, give us the boldness and the courage to ask, what can I do to help you? Um, Give us the confidence to do it. And God, ultimately help us continue to try to figure out how do we become people of honor? God, how do we treat people as uncommon? And God, we're thankful that you set the example first by treating us that way. God, we thank you and we love you and pray this in your name. Amen.